0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. A few years ago, Yvette Christianza was doing research in the Cape Colonies Archive in Cape Town, South Africa, when she came across something. It was a record of a slave woman's story, and it so haunted Christianza that she felt compelled to write about it. Christianza is an academic. She's actually a professor of English here at Fordham. But the book she ended up writing about that slave woman is a novel. It's called Unconfessed. The book came out late last year, and earlier this month it was announced that the book was a finalist for the 2007 Hemingway Foundation Penn Award for Distinguished First Book of Fiction. Today on Fordham Conversations, I'm bringing you a conversation that I had with Yvette Christianza back in November of last year, at the time of her book's release from other press. Here's that interview. Yvette Christianza, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Nora. Now, tell me about your book, Unconfessed. What happens in the book?
1: This is a, a slave woman who eventually ends up with the name Scylla. In effect, the book is, a, is set on Robin Island. It's her long love song to her dead son, son who's dead by her own hand, her nine-year-old son Barrow. Um, I came across her in the archives by sheer accident. It was in the middle of some bureaucratic language, a memorandum from the Colonial Office about bushels of nibs and reams of blotting paper and um, saying, yes, the superintendent of police could um, thatch the roof on the prison house, and no, he couldn't do X, Y, and Z. And by the way, why is this woman named Scylla still alive when she'd been sentenced to death by strangulation three years earlier? This letter was dated um, 1827. She had been sentenced to death for a crime she committed, the slain of her son, in March 1823. That makes it, I think my maths are out slightly, but yeah... So my, that's why I have an accountant, one, two, three, many. <laughs> no, um, she, she killed her son Barrow on Christmas Eve, 1822. March 1823, she's sentenced to death. She lives in an outlying district, and she's taken back to the Cape to Cape Town. By the time she arrives, she is allegedly pregnant, and uh, the rule then was that you did not execute a pregnant woman. And then she just vanishes from the records. And she turns up all of those years later. And it's very clear that she's been used as a prison prostitute. She's had two more children, one of whom has died. And the new superintendent of police, uh, an amazing man, Baron Conrad de de Lawrence, who had been brought from India because he had a particular skill and his skill skill was crowd control. He comes to the Cape Colony and he finds her languishing in prison. And he's so moved by her story that he petitions King George to release her. And George wants to clearly release her. But the colonial office has to set an example. So her sentence is commuted to 14 years hard labor on Robben Island.
0: So Robben Island
1: is? That famous Robben Island It's the prison island just off the coast of Cape Town. You see it from Cape Town. It's where Nelson Mandela and other leaders of the ANC were incarcerated for years.
0: So you were in this archive and you come across this name and this sort of scant amount of information. How much did you learn about Scylla from it?
1: Almost nothing, and I think that's why the fiction wanted to enter. But I spent 10 years researching And that's why the the novel actually is... The form of the novel is shaped by the the experience in the archive. It cannot be a linear narrative. It has to be fragmented, radically fragmented. And the through line of the story has to come from Scylla's voice, from the way that she circles um, crises, the way that she circles complaints. Um, One of her complaints is the fact that she was manumitted twice, and cheated out of her freedom twice by the uh, sons of the uh, widows who had manumitted her. Her condition then revealed something about um, the tension between um, women and men in late uh, 18th, early 19th century uh, Cape Colony social relations. And that is that widows, since they inherited um, and since they outlived their husbands, invariably outlived their husbands, were in real positions of power when it came to property ownership and wealth. And in, But that ran counter to the Calvinistic notion of headship, as to who was the proper head of a family. And so you had this tension between older sons and widows, and a lot has been written about that. My discoveries in the, in the archive was that Scylla's life, is absolutely caught up in that kind of larger gender struggle because each time she's cheated out of her manumission, the heir or or the son of that estate changes her name on paper and sells her away, even though legally she is a free woman. So that's why I said her name, the name that she's eventually known by is Scylla.
0: So that would not have been her name as a younger person? We don't know. We don't know. Tell me about slavery in South Africa. How how did it work? It's interesting. Slavery
1: in South Africa, of course, uh, comes through the Dutch. Um, uh, 17th century arrival, uh, I think 1652, I, I might be slipping on the date, and I feel... Reverend Mother or Sister Ambrose or any one of those history teachers suddenly lurking behind me with a, a giant-sized ruler to clap me on the knuckles. Um, Jan van Riebeek, um, a captain of a Dutch East India vessel, arrives. A month later, he asks for slaves. There is just a practical thing. That you cannot take your slaves from the local people. You are outnumbered. You will have a huge problem. So slaves are brought from Mozambique, from Madagascar. Indentured workers are brought from Malaya, from, from Java, or Batavia, right? It's then called Batavia, and So you immediately have a hierarchy of labor. You also have very, very lower class, um, usually um, Belgians and lowland Dutch who come there. They are another form of indentured workers they call the Knechts. But you have this hierarchy at the bottom of which is the slave. Slavery it runs, you know, in the sa- it has the same timetable as in other British colonies, 1834, uh, abolition with a four-year apprenticeship. The interesting thing about slavery in South Africa is that what it lacks is that kind of opportunity that existed certainly in America, in what will come to be called America, is the market and the opportunity for slave narrative. There are no slave narratives. In existence, well, that 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 are available in that in that constructed sense of that novelistic sense as a genre. So what what I'm looking at are the, are the interstices. I, I'm looking at the shadows. I'm looking at missionary letters. I'm looking at um, advertisements in the, the the Cape Gazette, which runs for a short time. I'm looking at just accidental references to slaves, and then those registers—just names and numbers, birth certificates, death certificates. It's about the bureaucracy, you know. The, the one of the, the interesting things about British colonialism is its bureaucracy um, and, and accounting. Yeah.
0: Why were there not these opportunities among South African slaves?
1: Yeah. Um, the the colonial office I think was watching what was happening in America. And very few of the scholars of South African slavery talk about the why. My um, summation is that the colonial office is watching what's happening in the Americas, and seeing the ferment and the force of of a revolt against slavery.
0: What was the everyday life of a slave like?
1: ah. Uh. That's interesting because the, the rules are so very carefully recorded. Saves were not allowed to have buttons. They couldn't wear shoes. I mean, their clothes
0: were regulated. And and Scylla talks a lot about buttons in yes, the book. Yes,
1: that's right. <laughs> yes, is that um, I don't know if one's allowed to have favorite moments in a book, but one of my favorite moments is where she realizes that her children are like buttons on her dress and that her life is like a dress hanging on a line and just getting more threadbare by the second, yeah. Button's very important.
0: So what else, what other rules govern them? What were their everydays like?
1: Their everydays, um, initially with the Dutch, they were given, their, their compensation for their labor was arak, uh, a brandy that, that was brought from Batavia. And so um, slaves within then could automatically be accused of constantly being drunks. The Knechts, by the way, were also paid with a rack. Um, the dailiness of a slave's life depended. If you belonged to the Dutch East India Company, you lived in the slave lodge, which was in Cape Town. Uh, tourists can go to remnants of the slave lodge now. There was a very interesting thing, and Robert Shell has documented this, this daily business of visiting. Men would go off to visit each other. Wives would go off to visit each other. And then men would go to the, the the slave lodge where the slave women, between certain hours, um, late afternoon into evening, were literally kept as prostitutes. Slaves in the lodge had a very very difficult life. Slaves outside of the lodge, I think, it just it as it did here, it depended on your individual um, owner. I think the same thing, lives are absolutely um, controlled. When the, when the British come in, there, there's an attempt to create a school for slaves. A lot of objection from the, the Dutch uh, farmers. The kind of abolitionist movement that one saw in the States is never allowed to get underway in the Cape Colony. Um, the dailiness of slave life, I try to flesh out by doing lots of research. Uh, again, the hierarchy of of lives you saw the the indentured workers who were brought in from batavia they had the particular skills of of being seamstresses of being the weavers the carpenters um mostly the kind of slave that i'm talking about in my novel they're doing the hard labor Scylla has a gift and her gift is that she's a seamstress that she's learned yeah so i'm not sure if i answered Your question, because in fact, if 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 I sound like I'm circling, it's because you don't have that body of information generated by the slaves themselves. You have third-hand, second-hand comments about their
0: lives. (laughs) You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this morning with author and Fordham professor Yvette Christianza about South African slavery, apartheid, and her book Unconfessed. That book's been named a finalist for the prestigious Hemingway Foundation Penn Award. Let's return now to our conversation. Can you trace a line for me between this slavery and apartheid? Um, In the outlying districts, the Dutch are a law unto themselves,
1: and... um, there is a tension, There's a, there is a sense that the English are arriving and they, they want to take over everything, including a person's right to own property as slaves are regarded. You mentioned the history of that most people know, the history of apartheid. Well, I think apartheid has a direct connection to slavery and that is that so many of the the Dutch farmers... Break away from their actual location, they set off on those voyages inland to get away from the, a British rule that puts former slaves on the same footing as the language begins to emerge in their white uh, betters and you know I don't know if you know the story of the Great Trek. Um, the Great Trek is this, this is this name that's given actually to a series of outward uh, movements from the Cape Colony. One of the tracks is uh, is led, or the what do you call it in America? It's the wagoners, right? What did you call them? What's the
0: the pioneers?
1: The pioneers, right? One of one of those pioneer movements is led by a man named Smith, and his sister Susanna Smith is said to have um, declared that she would rather walk backwards and barefoot over the Drakensberg Mountains than be put on the same footing as a former slave. Um, other. What you would call pioneer leaders in South Africa you said trek leaders like Louis trichard um and pittratif they 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 were all leaving this this sense that the British were taking over their way of life, and the ending of slavery was for most the last straw, and it was the sense that slaves were on the same footing as people who clearly saw themselves as their betters. The language of this notion of of betters appears much, much later. It's in the Constitution. It's in the Bantu Education Act of 1954 where Hendrik Verwut, who's called the architect of apartheid, writes uh, writes something like this and that black people would be educated in a manner that would prepare them to serve their betters. And so one would then give you, I think, also a history of developing race theory and racialized theory that would then eventually include people like de Gobineau who gets um, incorporated uh, both into you know late 19th century American thought but also in South Africa, 19th century, and then right up into the 20th century. Um, those racialized theories that, that looked to slavery... And that saw in slavery the instantiation of a belief that certain people were born to be enslaved, to be ruled, who had to be ruled, um, who had to be brought into the civilizing order of of others, their betters, who invariably perceived themselves to be European.
0: Why does Scylla kill her child?
1: Scylla kills her child for the same reason that so many slave women... Killed their children um, in, in America and also in the Cape Colony. She's one of six women that I was researching who are all charged with infanticide or child murder. Um, she, so the story goes, as it is eventually um, um, discovered, she's manumitted the second time by a widow Theron and she is cheated out of this, and she and her children are so eventually sold away out of, the Cape, out of Cape Town to an outlying district to a farmer named Van der Vaart. And he is so brutal, and she simply cannot take it after a few years of being there and having had her, her two older children sold away. And she's left with two young children, a baby named Peter and her nine-year-old Barra, and for some reason, Van der has taken this... this he's set himself against this boy. And he's constantly beaten. And this particular day, Silla sends him to pick lemons so that she could uh, take some stains out of the sheets, the household sheets. And he's away for a while and he comes back and he's very bruised and very lethargic. And he's received another beating from Van der And he has a bruise... Swelling up over the area where the liver over the where the liver is, I, I actually asked a friend who's a doctor to have a look at this description, and it's possible that he has the beating has been so severe that he has internal bleeding. She takes some fat that would have been used on her bread and she rubs it into the wound, and then puts Barrow in her lap, and he falls asleep. And she takes a knife that she has stolen, a clasp knife, and cuts his throat from ear to ear. And her plan is to kill herself as well. And she never talks about what she planned for the baby Peter. But she doesn't kill herself. She buries Burrow's body next to the Biteau River, which runs just near the the slave owner's home. And then she does this other remarkable thing. She walks off the property. And she walks, and she gives herself up to the local magistrate, and then she is tried for the, for murder. the 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 trial, which exists only in fragment, has this this one and two answers from Sella. The prosecutor, in that language of the law, asks us that a rhetorical question, which tells her what. The law already thinks she did. Is it true that on the twenty fourth of, of December, eighteen twenty two, you took your son Barrow and cruelly used him, and um, cut his throat, etc.? And Silla says something in the Dutch. She says, "Ja, an ik was Herz hier. Oh, she just says "ik was Herz hier. and the prosecutor clearly does. He just wants yes, and he repeats, "Is it true that etc." and she just says the same thing was hatsia and then there's a, a description and it indicates that the that the prisoner was overcome and it's a very interesting old dutch word that can also read uh, for, for uh, as a refusal so the so the, dis, the description of her as having refused to answer the question this word hatsia gets transliterated into hartso in the, in the English, and it's the word that haunts all the bureaucratic language. It's there in every single legalistic page about her. Uh, from then on, Herzir,
0: Now, you were researching a number of women. Why did you choose to tell Scylla's story? Uh, Scylla's story chose me, uh, and I think it was the, the fact
1: that this word this word heart sore seemed to just irradiate through all the bureaucratic language. And there was something about Silla's story that moved a superintendent of police to actually petition a king.
0: You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just ahead this morning on WFUV, it's Cityscape. On this week's show, we'll check in with New York's waterways. That's Cityscape with George Bodarchy this morning at 7.30. We're talking today on Fordham Conversations with Yvette Christianza. Christiansa is an associate professor of English at Fordham, and she is the author of the book Unconfessed. That book's been named a finalist for the 2007 Hemingway Foundation Penn Award for a distinguished first book of fiction. It's out now from other press. As I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, of course, of uh, Toni Morrison's book, Beloved. Of course, yes, of course. What is uh, What are the lines between the books?
1: The lines between the books is that what drew me to Morrison, I mean, long before I found Scylla, was Morrison's capacity to ask how. You know, that's the question she asked at the beginning of, of her first novel, The Bluest Eye, since why is difficult, how has to suffice, she says. What I learned from Morrison was was the authority to write a story like this. I think the novel's very different in that Unconfessed is entirely in Scylla's head. And and I think that Unconfessed goes places where I think Morrison suggests that her readers go into Seth's mind. I think Morrison has a different world, of course, that she's writing about. It's a world that is much more documented. What is it that I really learnt from Beloved was to withhold, to withhold and to withhold as a writer. It's like people rush to see a car accident, you know, that peculiar thing. I think that is an impulse that one has to to stall in oneself, one has to stall it in a reader, because you have to understand how it is that this terrible event took place. That's what Beloved does. Beloved says, you know, we know it. It's sensational. But what is it that falls away behind the sensational? It's the dailiness. It's the every single living, breathing day of something that drives someone to such a moment which then becomes public that's what i learned from 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 beloved it's structural it's it's
0: about structuring a novel getting back to, to cecilia she has in in the book in on robin island she's these very specific relationships with the other women and some of the men on the island mm-hmm. I'm guessing those aren't accidental. There's the one woman that she gets along with. There's another woman that she doesn't get along with. There's four prisoners who have gone mad. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose um, those specific characters?
1: Those women are, on record, they are on the island. The, The men are not. I've plucked their names from just the roster, and I've fleshed in. My own comments the 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 those men who are mad it 's matrus kaiser soldat it's the the three There, they're a kind of a silent chorus that moves around, and they are to me uh, Silla's limit it's i didn't want Scylla to have the excuse of madness, and I need to be very careful in the way I say it because i don't think madness is an excuse in real life i don 't think of it as that, but as a writer and certainly for a reader. It's it's a it's a relief to think that, oh, somebody who does something so shocking is mad. But so I wanted to present those three men who in their different different ways are the limit of where Scylla will allow her herself to go. The two women on the island, well there are number eventually, but the two women, Minna and Lace, are actually there on the record on the island with Scylla. And they are the women who are also raped by the prisoners and the men who have been brought to build a jetty for the prison warden. All of those figures really did exist. I fleshed out the circumstances. The fact is they were raped on the island. Nine months later, Silla gives birth to, to a baby. I read in the prison warden's record um, the fact that he kept having to put the women on bread and water they're on bread and water from the moment they've been raped. They're just, they just—they clearly have nothing to lose, and they're not going to be obedient to anybody. But I also—I didn't want to write one of those um, recuperative, rosy, glow-in-the-belly um, women's bonding stories. I wanted to show that there were these different women. They didn't know how to live with each other, and they had to find a way. And um, so Mina is this woman who just someone that Scylla doesn't get on with. And the reason they don't get on is that of that moment when Scylla steals something from the warden's kitchen for Minna's child and her own child. And Minna is so afraid that she will be punished and be punished in a way that would have her daughter removed from her that she sets herself against Scylla. And Scylla never forgives her for that. And I think the other thing about Minna and Scylla is they have seen each other in... Horribly reduced circumstances, and they see one sees herself in the other right, so I think that's part of their their thing and man, they hate each other they and then every now and then Scylla wants to feel compassion for for Minna but she can't, and it's also safe for her safe for both of those women to to hate each other because. It's safer than, than hating the guards, even though they do, but you can vocalize your hatred of each other. So they become these release valves for each other. Lace, Laceism, um, she is the one, I think, who keeps Scylla anchored in this world. And she's they love each other, you know? Yeah.
0: What happens to Scylla in the end, both in real life and in the novel?
1: Scylla vanishes from the record, and in the end we don't know what happens to her
0: now clearly you feel very drawn to this to this woman to mm-hmm. the person and to the character mm-hmm. but for sort of everyday readers american people um just sort of members of the general public why should they read this book and why should they care about this this character
1: so much of south africa's slave in history has only been in the hands of uh, historians and sometimes there have been misreadings of, of motive. So one scholar, I won't talk. say who, who, he, I will say that much, reads the women in the slave lodge as having chosen the men who come to sleep with them. And I was like, how on earth did you come to that conclusion? And it's a very peculiar notion. And so I think he wants, to, he wants to fill in a story, so he's actually beginning to make fiction. I think also that my experience of sitting in the archives um before the fall of apartheid and and even after was one in which I would see white people coming to look for their ancestors, and I would see black people coming in after apartheid had fallen, and they're looking for their white forebears and I'm like what what is going on I mean this was going on right up until 99 I would see people coming in looking for this material in 96 it changed slightly when the truth and reconciliation commission began a lot of uh, um people were coming in to look for for land for title for for deeds to 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 be able to mount land claims but I was very plagued by the fact that few people actually wanted to admit to having had slaves in their background, and it just seemed that that was a part of South Africa's history that was just in danger of, of falling away, and I wanted the woman's story to come to come out there.
0: Well, Yvette Christiananza, thanks so much for coming in.: Thank you, Nora very much.:. <laughs> That was Yvette Cristianza. Cristianza is an associate professor of English at Fordham University, and her novel, Unconfessed, has just been named a finalist for the Hemingway Foundation Pen Award for a distinguished first book of fiction. It's out now from other press. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you missed part of the show or you'd like to hear it again, we're podcasting these days. If you're interested in subscribing or if you just want a little more information, click on podcasts on our homepage, WFUV.org. Up next on WFUV, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. I'm Nora Flaherty. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. This is WFUV 90.7, WFUV.org.